So first of all, we have John Reed, who will be known to many of you, Professor of Clinical Psychology at University of East London, has published many, many books and research papers. He's currently on the board of the Hearing Voices Network. His particular interest is in the links between what we might call psychosis and trauma. And he's been campaigning and writing out ECT for many years, has published widely on it. You can see the links in the chat. We will also be joined by Chris Harrop. Chris is a clinical psychologist working in private practice after 20 years in the NHS, published widely in the area of what we might call psychosis. He's also been the lead author or co-author on many of the recent uh, devastating investigations using freedom of information requests into the way ECT is practiced and regulated or in some most cases not properly regulated. We are all going to be joined by Sarah Price Hancock from the States. Uh, Sarah has lived for nearly two years with a presumed diagnosis of severe mental illness, for which she received 116 bilateral ECT treatments, now lives with very severe delayed electrical injury. In 2017, her psychiatric symptoms are found to have a known physiological cause. And Sarah's been campaigning for proper regulation and practice of ECT for many, many years. And because due to ECT damage, her voice isn't always very confident uh, or clear. She's using voice technology to present her slides today, but we're delighted to have her here and welcome her from the States. I don't know what kind of day it is, but I suspect it may be quite early. There are links in the website to her articles and to a blog, uh, to a website which she and others are setting up. And finally, Sue Cunliffe. Sue is a former paediatrician whose life was profoundly affected by the ECT. She was actually a victim of coercive abuse and was given electroconvulsive therapy, suffered life-changing permanent brain damage with an extraordinary amount of effort and determination and has managed to, at least to some extent, overcome many of her difficulties. She still struggles on a daily basis with some of the after effects of ECT, but that doesn't stop her being a passionate campaigner for proper regulation and proper informed consent to ECT. She has uh, got a blog. She has appeared at debates like the one which you can see the link in the chat. So a really, really, really inspiring collection of campaigners. I'm so pleased and honoured and privileged to be part of this group. So we're going to take about five minutes to present the campaign from their point of view. Sarah will probably take a little bit longer because of the voice technology she's using. We may have a minute or two to uh, wrap up at the end. So over to you, John, to do the technology stuff and to highlight people in turn. I think we're starting with John. Do you want me to just go with this thing? Just go. Yes. Hi, Hi, everyone. It's just great to be with you all. Uh, ACT, of course, is one of the most extreme and bizarre examples of the medicalization of human distress. The idea of passing 150 volts of electricity through someone's brain could possibly be a good idea. It's quite staggering, but we've had it now for, for 70, 80 years. So my job is just briefly summarize some of the, uh, the evidence-based facts that we have around ECT. I've published five reviews now of the ECT literature. Um, we know, for instance, that uh, around the world, two thirds of the people who are receiving are women. 
Uh, we know that the average age of the person who receives it uh, is between 60 and 65. So this treatment is very targeted. It's it's targeted at specific diagnoses like depression. It's actually targeted at older women. Um, in terms of its efficacy, there have been no ECT placebo studies since 1985, which is staggering. Uh, for such a for such a dangerous treatment, you'd think there'd be regular studies. And um, before 1985, there were 11 tiny fraud studies. Five found there was no difference between ECT and placebo. Four found ECT was a little bit better in the short term. Two found mixed results. My favorite result was one where um, the nurses and the patients could see no difference, but the psychiatrists could. That was one of my favorite mixed results. Um, there had never been a single study showing that ECT has any benefit compared to placebo beyond the end of treatment, um, you know, one week after the, the series of ECTs. And there is no evidence to support the much, much often repeated claim that it somehow prevents suicide. In terms of safety, um, the best way to summarize all of that research is, is that um, between 12 and 55% of people will report persistent or permanent memory loss. There's many other types of damage. Um, Sarah might talk about some of the damages that are, are never even acknowledged at all. There is a risk of death. It's small, but it, that, but it is there. Um, and I think all you need to know really in terms of safety is that one of the ECT manufacturers, the ECT machine manufacturers, has amongst its a list of risks permanent brain damage. Um, psychiatry still, still denies this, but the manufacturer of the machines itself acknowledges it. That's a bizarre situation. And Sarah pointed out to us recently that the, the FDA in the USA insists that every ECT machine must have close, close to it a sign saying that, quote, there is no evidence that ECT um, has, lo has long-term safety or effectiveness. And that's the Food and Drug Administration, well known for its uh, radical stances on 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 things. Um, we recently done a couple of audits um, using finger information requests um, uh, with with Chris Harrop and a couple of other people. Quick uh, highlights from those: we've recently found a forty-seven fold difference between the NHS trust that uses it the most and one that uses it the least, which tells you that the decisions are just basically the whim of of various individual psychiatrists. If it was an effective treatment, it would be used pretty much, uh, pretty much equally around the country. Um, Thirty-seven percent is given without consent. Um, Thirty percent of cases of NHS trusts, those are our regional mental health services, um, do not even attempt to measure depression with any sort of um, standardized measure, and twenty-four percent don't measure cognitive dysfunction with any sort of measure. Uh, the other audit we've done is about the information that people are told um, using information, looking at information leaflets. And we, we found that um, there were 29 possible, out of 29 possible accurate statements that should be in an information leaflet, um, there was uh, uh, an arbitrary 11 inaccurate statements on the information given to patients. The Royal College of Psychiatrists our own leaflet has seven inaccurate statements, um, and, uh, and uh, it basically makes it impossible for people to make informed consent. So 
every ECT clinic in Britain, and I'm assuming it's the same around the world, um, is breaking the basic principle of informed consent uh, every time they hand out one of these uh, misleading leaflets to people. In terms of response to the campaign, I've got 30 seconds left, I think. Uh, the Royal College of Psychiatrists' response to our campaign was to have their comms department, their spin doctors, um, try and they contacted the publisher of one of our uh, of one of our scientific papers to try and get the publisher to force us to change what we have written. And what they wanted changing was not the methodology or the findings, but the fact that we said that the Royal College was responsible for monitoring the ECT. They wanted that statement removed so that they could not be held accountable for any of the nonsense that's going on around the country. Um, that I've, I've been around a long time, as you can see. I've never heard of an organization trying to suppress the scientifically published article um, in that way. But um, on a more uh, positive note, um, we did manage, we have managed, um, uh, Sarah Sue and I got a paper published in the Psychiatric Times in the USA, which goes to, was it Sarah, 40, I think 50,000 psychiatrists. So I, I briefly summarized the research Sue and Sarah talked about their experiences. Uh, and that's quite a major breakthrough um, to have uh, the three of us and it was, um, get something in the Psychiatric Times. And it was, it was there, it's in the link, I think, in the chat. And it was, it was called ECT Dangerous on Both Sides of the Atlantic. So that was a, that was a little triumph on the way. I'll stop. Thank you, John. And we're now going to go to Sarah, I think. And Sarah has a PowerPoint presentation, which John is about to show. Hi, Sarah. Unmute yourself if you want to say anything. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Nice to see you. Are you are you ready? And you? I'm 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 ready. If somebody can just tell me how I can share my screen. Um, I think if I click on this, uh, I'm clicking on something now. Just it'll just help me. Um... Yes, if you click that sh green share screen button, Sue. Um... Yeah, it's I've done that, and now it's come up. Um... Yes, oh, we're, the screen is changing now. So yes, that's it. Great. That if I change slides, can everyone see that? You. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, thank, yeah, thank you very much, everybody, for having me. Um, I've basically, uh, my my time has been spent looking at how come um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists and ECT units get away with things. So I've been investigating ECTAS uh, and the CCQI, and I did decided that they developed a great art of information manipulation. And I'm going to spend five minutes whacking through what I've my experiences. So the first thing I realized was that they are quite prepared to remove documents from their website. I got um, a newspaper to publish the ECTAS 2015 patient survey. And as soon as that got published, ECTAS removed all its documentation from 2004. But fortunately, I downloaded that onto my computer because it's been a, a really a mine of knowledge. So firstly, the CCQI, uh, this is college run, and it's basically to, I'm sorry, I'm just going to just, sorry, my pictures are over, taking over that. It's uh, basically they're there to assess and improve the quality of the care that psychiatrists in the UK offer to their patients. 
They employ several members of staff and they have access to millions of pounds of funding. Um, but what they do is they've actually fail, failed to implement their own research findings. In 2009, Kerry Kershaw and the CCQI published three years of research, two papers. One was patient perspectives of the consent process and side effects of ECT. And the second one was how specialist consultants inform patients about memory loss. They concluded quite clearly that consent should be improved and that tests for monitoring brain damage needed to be designed. In spite of the massive amounts of funding, they chose not to obtain funding for this project and they completely ignored their own recommendations. And I think they took it even further because they didn't really publish this research. They never discussed it on any ECTAS forum or in newsletters. It wasn't published on the Royal College website and it was effectively hidden on the web because never in 10 years of searching did it ever come up on a search engine for ECT or consent or side effects and testing? And I only discovered it earlier on this year when I decided, when I was trawling through all the papers that the, the ECTAS had deleted and I came across, across Kerry Ann's uh, name. She was one of the authors, put her name in and up came these really important papers, but they'd been completely ignored. Uh, then. ECT Accreditation Service, run by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, started in 2004. Let's have a look at sort of their antics. So, um, they, you know, in 2004, they basically said that if ECT was ever legislated against, uh, it would be because of a failure to supervise and monitor it correctly. And the chairman of ECTAS said that ECTAS was there to ensure that ECT was given appropriately, safely, and with due concern to a patient's consent and dignity. That sounds great. He went on to say that um, uh, he would say that ECTAS is an example of good practice and excellent clinical governance. So again, I, I started um, investigating this to try and understand what, what had happened to me and how it could have happened. And it all comes down to words. And so they say, ECTAS says that we accredit services who can demonstrate a high level of compliance with our, and I put in brackets, chosen quality standards, and that will become apparent in a minute. Uh, they have hundreds of standards and they've put them into diff three different categories. And type one to be accredited, you have to get 100% of all type one standards. And they've identified these standards because they say that, you know, if these standards aren't met, then they would it would pose a significant threat to patient safety, their rights, their dignity, and it could breach the law. So that all sounds great. Um, then um, I started reading further, further documentation and discovered that they were repeatedly saying that the monitoring of side effects for ECT was the most commonly missed standard. And yet, when I compared this against accreditation lists, nearly every unit in the UK was accredited. So none of this made sense. So I then read into detail. I started reading the standards in detail. And it shows that they completely ignored their own defini definition in that they didn't put monitoring into as a type one standard. They made it a type two standard, which meant that they didn't have to monitor patients. They didn't have to keep patients safe to get accreditation. And I think this is a major safety failing and misleading. So then their other action is not to really detail what their standards um, 
you know, really mean. And I raised my concerns with two presidents of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And I got really excited at one point because I was then informed um, that they had now made monitoring uh, to prevent brain damage a type one standard. But then when I read the standards, they didn't specify what monitoring meant. So effectively, it's a tick box exercise. So if a unit decides that monitoring a patient means asking them if two plus two equals four, they get a tick in the box that said they're monitoring and therefore they get an accreditation. And as John has shown, consent is a type one, but they just have to say they're consenting patients to get accredited. It doesn't matter what information they give to people at all. And then another way of manipulating the standards is that you can completely ignore patients' needs. So patients like myself, we experience injuries, they're never diagnosed and we never get treatment. But rehabilitation is a type three standard and hence is never needed for units to be accredited. So after my quick ramble, my conclusion is that neither ECTAS nor the CCQI are fit for purpose. And this had wider this has wider implications for all NHS accreditation services. It appears to be a complete waste of money. And my work suggests that, you know, these services depend on the integrity of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Evidence demonstrates that both ECTAS and the CCQI, actually these systems are more able to hide failings instead of highlighting them and bringing improvements, and that the actions by the Royal College of Psychiatrists do not show a willingness to improve key standards to ensure safety and consent. And I think accreditation misleads patients and hospitals, and when patients complain, like myself, ECTAS accreditation is used as a shield to protect the units and they prevent investigations. So sorry, that's been a bit of a whistle-top store, but thank you very much for listening, and I, and I hope it makes sense. That was fantastic, Sue. What a lot of information you managed to get into that. Sorry, might have been a bit rushed, but... It was brilliant. It was brilliant. We'd all like to have more time because we all feel very passionate about this and there's so much to say, but you've clearly conveyed the message that, I mean, this is very, very dodgy stuff. Your detective work has dug out some of the, some of the dodgiest stuff. It's a bit like cat and mouse. Whatever we do, they do something else and make people believe that they're doing something, but actually it's a completely insignificant move. It's all window dressing. Yeah. Yeah. We know that. Thank you. I think, Sarah, your presentation is now ready to go so okay i'll just cue that thank you sarah for that update here we go Darling. you want to say anything sarah you will have to unmute yourself or we have we just go go with it this brief presentation covers why every patient has a uniquely different ect experience what device manufacturers mean when they warn that ect can cause brain damage Discuss how ECT qualifies as a repetitive, mild or moderate, traumatic brain injury. Discuss the importance of looking at ECT as repeated electrical injury and understanding how the damage impacts life after treatment. When talking about ECT, we must remember, not all ECT is the same because of the number of variables involved in generating the electrical field strength or what we can think of as the electrical dose and the circumstances under which it is generated. Let's take a look at how many unregulated variables are involved in creating an electrical dose. Keep in mind, psychiatrists have specialty training in human biology, not the physics of bioengineering. 
Variables include the current strength. It is fixed at either 800 or 900 milliamps, depending on the device. Yes, you heard correctly. Every device in every country has different electrical dosing capacity, even when made by the same manufacturer. Fixed amperage is an arbitrary number without clinical or scientific rationale. Pulse width and pulse type. Frequency is an important variable. The Hertz setting determines how long the current is pulsed through the brain. Depending on Hertz settings, it could be pulsed for up to 8 seconds. Charge. Voltage. Modern ECT machines produce different voltages. Meta is 250 volts. Cymatron generates 450 volts. To continue with variables, percent of power. Where are electrodes put on the head? In bilateral electrode placement, the charge's focus is the interior of the frontal lobes and brainstem. Additional variables include how much electricity was given to a patient compared to the dose needed to cause a seizure, how long the brain was exposed to the pulse charge, how long each seizure lasted, how long did the brain activity turn off before it restarted, which medicines are in the blood during ECT. Medicine and anything else in the blood is delivered at a cellular level, amplifying their effects. Other variables include length of time between treatments and the number of ECT treatments a person endures. This is a screenshot of the 2018 regulatory update for the Cymatron ECT machine. It was published within days of the confidential settlement in an American federal court case against the device manufacturer. Notice how they cite the American Psychiatric Association as recognizing seven independent risks associated with ECT's permanent memory loss and permanent brain damage. It's important to know that each of these risks are independent, which means patients can be exposed to any number of risks during each and every treatment. I had five of the seven risks. So, how can we better understand ECT's damage? I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Bennett Omalu. He's a forensic neuropathologist. The coroner, who first identified chronic traumatic encephalopathy in American football players. Will Smith played him, in the movie, Concussion. Dr. Omalu explained ECT injury during a brain injury advisory board meeting for the state of California's Department of Rehabilitation. He confirmed that repetitive head trauma causes functional injuries that aren't readily seen on standard brain scans, but that the neuropathology of electrical injury in people with a history of ECT is easily recognized under a microscope. He said it causes extensive functional changes which must be considered in the context of both an electrical injury and repetitive head trauma. He explained, the natural laws governing electricity do not change based on a doctor's intent. Let's talk repetitive mild to moderate, traumatic, brain injury. ECT is rarely a single event. The more a person has, the worse the outcome. Acute or index courses are typically three times a week in America, twice a week in England. Can you imagine sending an athlete with a brain injury back in to play before they healed? We now understand how dangerous that is. ECT injury is referred to as mild to moderate because, like a concussion, microstructural cell damage cannot be seen on standard brain scans. In ECT, brain activity silence, referred to as post suppression, happens after the seizure. 
doctors cannot control how long the brain turns off. Without brain activity, the lungs are not pumping oxygen through the brain, and the brainstem's ability to regulate heart rate is compromised. Yes, the person has an oxygen mask on, but there is no brain activity to breathe it in, and respiratory muscles are paralyzed without mechanical support to inflate the lungs properly until the paralytic wears off completely. This creates anoxia and hypoxia. Doctors are not required to document how long brain activity silence and coma lasted. It varies in every patient and every treatment based on the variables mentioned previously. Without oxygen circulation and erratic perfusion, cell death begins at 4 minutes. A study on modern, modified ECT documented that brain activity suppression can last more than 6 minutes in some patients who later awakes from coma activity. ECT's anesthesia wears off fast, the person is actually awaking from coma after the fast-acting anesthesia wore off. Traumatic brain injuries are typically measured by how long the person was unconscious. For ECT recipients, this refers to how long there was no brain activity, plus how long coma activity lasted, at each treatment. Mild means loss of consciousness was less than 30 minutes. Moderate means the person was unconscious for more than 30 minutes, but less than 24 hours. This picture is from an actual ECT neuropathology study, using an electric field more than four times weaker than modern ECT. There is hypertrophy and hyperplasia of astrocytes around irregularly dilated blood vessels. I'm genuinely curious what my brain will look like at autopsy under a microscope. People are familiar with acute electrical injury, but only electrical injury specialists are familiar with delayed low-voltage electrical injury. Please remember all the variables involved in ECT, to understand every ECT recipient has a unique outcome. No two people get ECT the same way, with the exact same circumstances. Electrical injury and violent seizure activity can potentially cause pathological neurogenesis, reactive gliosis, demyelinization, perivascular hemorrhage, chronic microbleeding, cerebral anoxic injury, vascular problems, stroke, changes in brain metabolism, acquired channelopathies, reversible or irreversible electroporation, leaky blood-brain barrier, leaky blood-cerebrospinal fluid barrier, major adverse cardiac events, and death. Delayed low-voltage electrical injury typically begins emerging with unexplained neuromuscular episodes long after shock. It can happen anywhere from several months to more than a decade after low-voltage shock. Repeated exposure to pulsed, high-energy fields changes how the body uses sodium, potassium, calcium and other electrolytes. The body transfers electronic messages across cell membranes by exchanging electrolytes through voltage-gated ion channels. Electrical injury changes ion channel function, causing acquired channelopathies. Gradually, the body loses ability to regulate electrolytes. Channelopathies cause episodes depending on which electrolyte the body is struggling to process. Symptoms can include a broad spectrum of sudden onset events including migraine, seizure, paralysis on one side of the body, tetany seizures, full body weakness, writhing movements, muscle spasms, muscle twitching, involuntary muscle movements and cardiac arrhythmia. Symptoms can resolve as quickly as they hit, 
Sometimes they last for several minutes, other times several days, depending upon how long it takes the body to regain homeostasis. Over time, there is a progressive loss of ion channel function in electrical injury patients. Episodes happen more frequently and people begin losing the ability to fully recover after an episode. We don't know if that's because ion channels continue to deteriorate, or if it's because with the loss of regulation, surrounding cells slowly lose capacity to regulate ion channels. It may be a combination of both. Rapidly pulsed, electric fields makes tiny Rapidly pulsed I'm just checking the science and seeing where we are. The cumulative effects of cellular microstructure damage is likely why, after more than 80 years of ECTUs, now the US FDA requires device manufacturers to put warnings in their user manuals and hospitals to display warnings that ECT's long-term safety and efficacy is not proven. And long-term follow-up may be needed. Psychiatrists are not routinely taught the neuropathology or histopathology of ECT, neither are neurologists. This makes it nearly impossible for ECT recipients to find appropriate long-term follow-up recommended by the FDA. Doctors who deny damage caused by ECT highlight gaps in their medical education which cause major problems for people navigating life after ECT. In conclusion, each year more than 2 million people begin their life after ECT. We must take warnings about permanent injury seriously. Not only can some patients experience problems during and immediately after ECT, but some patients develop additional problems long after treatment. Dr. Bennett Omalu said that further exploration into the needs of those impacted by ECT's functional brain injuries is necessary to improve quality of life after ECT. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. Thank you for that superb overview. We can see what a lot of expertise Sarah brings to our campaign as well as her lived experience. So thank you so much. And I know an awful lot of work went into that. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us. I'm grateful to have been here, and so grateful that we are shining a light, a spotlight, worldwide on the dangers that we are exposing humans to. We deserve better. Elsa. Couldn't put it better myself. Yeah, we're here together. We're shining a light on a particularly horrendous example of human ab rights abuses. And you all deserve better. You all deserve better. Thank you. So we now have uh, Chris tell us a little bit about. Uh, media coverage and other stuff that he's been involved with. Okay, I won't talk for long. I know we were going over a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so, have, so be, normally we would have um, 
sent our erudite papers to the people involved and said, do you know you're not following nice guidelines and your information sheets are kind of random and magical thinking compared to the actual literature post? Uh, but I think we took a change of track here. So we basically took a slightly more aggressive approach. Where we, we carpet bombed the NHS to chief executives and chairmen, um, trying to appeal to the things that bother them most, like media coverage. Um, so we, we sent them highly individualized letters saying exactly what their trust did and how it compared to the trust nationally in England. Um, the idea with that was, from, I think, from nudge theory, where they showed that uh, you pay taxes more if you know that most people pay, pay your taxes. Um, so we, we write from some, some of the worst offenders and said, do you realize you do it so many times more than anyone else? And you've done it on a child and you've done it on a 90 year old man. Um, are you aware that your information sheets are bollocks basically? Um, and we also sent the same letter to the, to the media locally near them. And we had quite a good response from a number of areas, usually where there was already some sort of campaign or something going on. So we've had articles, um, <clears throat> a couple of radio interviews, uh, Manchester Evening News did a very good piece. Um, Avon, uh, Worcester, lots of good places. Um, John uh, didn't mention earlier, but he's done some sterling work with uh, some journalists he's uh, cultivated over the years. So he's got a couple of articles in the Daily Mail, uh, probably another one coming out shortly, let's hope. Um, and what he also didn't mention is that this, this got quite nasty. So it wasn't just the case that the other side sat back and said, oh, you know, you're right, we're endangering people. We're not monitoring the risks that most people accept, are there? Um, so the, this dog's abuse on Twitter, really vitriolic, nasty, you know, causing lives to risk, you're unscientific. I mean, really, uh, and all the um, articles that we get questioning ECT and the psychiatric literature, they will publish three or four quite nasty ones after it as well, generally saying this is unscientific, uh, but without actually addressing the very detailed scientific points that, that John's made. So really not good. We've only had two replies back from CEOs so far. So the chief, chief executive of Mersey Care gave an exemplary response saying, uh, we didn't know what was going on. We're going to take action. We're going to get patients involved to write the information sheet. All the sort of stuff that actually it's not that hard to do. You know, it should be basics in modern medicine. Um, the only other one we've had back was from my own trust, sadly, which was that they seem to have misinterpreted it as a kind of whistleblower situation. So it was a little bit harsh. And I was let in backstage on, on email correspondences from uh, people I've worked with for years. Uh, where it, that was a bit disappointing, but I think I need to get tougher with these kind of conflicts because I'm not I'm not good with these kind of standard browsing things, but probably I should be. Um, so yeah, it's been fun, uh, interesting. Um, I think what Sue also didn't mention is that she's doing something incredibly brave soon. It's that have been invited her to talk at their national event. Uh, I think that's exactly what we should be doing. So we shouldn't be jousting with academic journals anymore. We need to get in there, talk to them, put our arm around them if we can. Explain our positions. Uh, I think this, you said this, you're a bad person. You said that, you're a bad person. We've got to get away from that. Um, so there's some very interesting developments going on. Uh, and there's a legal challenge going on, which is going to be interesting because that's something that people do care about. Um, so, yeah. I will leave it at that because I'm aware that we've gone on like I can ramble pretty good about this one. If you want to hear more, I'm happy to chat later. Thank you, Chris. So a fantastic set of presentations, I'm sure you'll agree. We all feel so strongly and passionate about this. We could all have spoken for several hours each. Uh, in England, over, it is possible to get exact figures, over probably two and a half thousand people a year get ECT across the UK. It's obviously more than that. A third of those people are non-consenting. It's arguable whether anyone can actually consent, given the lies they're told about it, that a third of people are actually saying no and getting it anyway. 
So visit our campaign blog, support us if you can, spread the word, write to your MP, and thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you particularly to Sarah and Sue who rattled their ongoing difficulties to do such amazing presentations. We're really, really, really grateful. Thank you.